Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Okay, last week, we, um, we, we continued in our journey uh, into the book of Nehemiah. And many of you, if you were here, you, you remember that we made great strides in covering that book. We, we, we made it through three verses. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that we're going to finish the chapter. But we did get through three whole verses last week. Uh, but I've worked hard, and I think we're going to get through uh, chapter 2 uh, this week. Uh, we, we, we talked last week that in chapter 2, verses 9 through 20 especially, that Nehemiah put on display for us a biblical model for dealing with the, the real struggles in our lives on our way to God's ideals. God has these plans for us, and we've got to pass through the reality of our struggles in order to move towards uh, those ideals. Um, And we said that every one of us struggles with real-life issues that, you know, we can't just bury our head in the sand and hope they'll go away, but instead, by the grace of God, that we have to step into that reality. And last week, we were able to point out two two of eight ways that Nehemiah would would walk through his reality and the obstacles as he journeyed towards God's ideal, the call that God had on his life. And we began in verse 9, and in verses 9 and 10, uh, we pointed out that one of the things that uh, Nehemiah did as a strategy for this was he boldly employed every God-given resource. And we talked extensively about some ways that we could in our day Uh, employ those God-given resources as God would give them. The Bible told us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. And we we have to trust in the goodness of God coming into our lives. Second strategy that we looked at uh, last week that uh, Nehemiah employed uh, on his journey was he came to understand that we must begin from a position of rest must begin from a position of rest if we're going to you know, deal with what's real on the way to God's ideal. And we stepped all the way back into the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at God's created order, but how he also created an order for our life rhythm that begins with rest before it moves into going out and being fruitful, going out into, into work. Then we moved over and jumped over to the Gospel of John, and we saw how Jesus redeemed that created order on the night before he would be crucified, he taught his disciples what that was about. And he told his disciples that if you were going to be fruitful, and and God's plan was that his followers would be very fruitful, that we would have to, first of all, get into the rhythm of resting in God, abiding in Christ first, before we will ever be ready to move out to fruitful living. And so we talked about that rhythm um, in, uh, at great length last week. And if you, didn't, if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and pick that up. Because those are two significant foundational strategies for all that Nehemiah set out to do. We talked about that, that resting uh, being the starting position. This morning, I want us to start in verse 12. I'm going to turn and cough. <coughs> that was loud. If I ever say I'm going to turn and cough again, say, switch the button off. Sorry about that. Um, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 12. It reads this way. Nehemiah said, then I arose in the night. Now, remember, he had spent three days in Jerusalem resting and those kinds of things we talked about. He says, then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I put no one, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So here's what Nehemiah did. He gets up in the middle of the night, he and a couple of men. He didn't tell anybody what God, he says, had put in his heart for him to do for Jerusalem. But God put something deep in Nehemiah's heart. God put something in there. Now, if you were with us in the first week of the study, you know that in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, it tells us what uh, God put in Nehemiah's heart. And it was this passion for the city of Jerusalem and the walls being restored so that, uh, that God's people would no longer live in shame and fear of attack and, and disgrace and God himself, his reputation wouldn't be disgraced among the peoples of that region. And so uh, he just had this great passion to see those walls uh, get, get rebuilt. And we saw that, that rhythm um, of his life for four months where the Bible tells us that what, what Nehemiah did was he prayed 
and he, he wept, and he fasted before the Lord. That was kind of the rhythm of his life for four months. And in that four months, God was planting this deep passion in the heart of Nehemiah that would guide him on, on his journey. And so this is really a third strategy we see Nehemiah using to deal with what's real in his life is he was guided by a God-given passion. If you and I are going to move to God's ideal, going through what we really are facing in this life, we will have to be guided by a God-given passion. It's the passion that God himself will plant in your heart. Now, Jesus, God planted this great passion in in Jesus' heart. And that passion allowed Jesus to overcome every, every problem, every difficulty that Satan could throw at him by following the passion of his heart. You know what the passion of Jesus' heart was? You. You. You, you were the passion on Jesus' heart. Of course, he wanted to be obedient to his Father in heaven, but his passion was your salvation and my salvation. Jesus would not rest until he overcame the last great problem that you and I face, which were sin and death. And Jesus came and overcame those for us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus had this holy discontent, if you would, for your salvation. For the salvation of the world, as the scripture tells us. And he would not be content until he defeated the last enemy that kept us separated from God. And that that was his passion. And it saw him through that last week of his life, which is called the week of what? Our Lord's passion. It's it's the passion week. That God-given passion guided Jesus. A God-given passion can guide you and I. As we're moving towards God's ideal, no matter what life throws at you, a God-given passion will help you move through that. And one of the ways you can discover what your God-given passion is, is thinking about this holy discontent. There's a great little book, if you've never read it, it's by Bill Hybels. The first half of it kind of builds the case for this holy discontent. The last half of it is stories. Real life stories of people who found their God-given passion by pursuing this holy discontent. And one of the questions that he asks in the book is, what aspect of this broken world that when you touch it or when you hear about it or when you come close to it, you can't stand? It, it it, it, It just destroys you to see that existing in our world. It creates this just this incredible firestorm of frustration. It's a holy discontent. It troubles you so much that it kicks your butt off the couch and gets you in the game. What, what, what is that? For some people, it's homelessness. or people, it's folks who hunger. But your heart hungers to respond and to step into something like this. And here's what you'll hear. When, when, when you know it's a God-given passion is you'll hear this. The voice of God will say to you, I hate this too. I hate this too. This is not supposed to be in my world. I'm, I'm doing something about this. You want to join me? That's, that's what kind of comes out of that. And, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah tells us by his own account that he did what God had put into his heart. What God had put into his heart in verse 12. See, one of my jobs, one of your jobs as a follower of Jesus Christ is to get connected to God's plan, if you would. God's plan for our passion. Now, of course, absolutely, God's plan and passion is that everyone would come to saving knowledge of the Lord. Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. He says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, God wants the world saved, but God also wants justice in our world. Micah 6, 8 tells us that he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God wants people loved and cared for. He wants the widows and the orphans and the poor and the outcasts and the refugees among us to be taken care of. The Bible has a lot to to say about strangers living among you and about about refugees. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, we read this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him any wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
That's an Old Testament commission by God for those who would be sojourners, if you would, in the land or refugees. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. During the week of his passion, Matthew records in in Matthew chapter 25, verse 35, Jesus saying, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. When Jesus was talking about when when we do it to the least of these. For some of you, I know a passion that God has been stirring lately. Not because I have tape recorders in your room or, you know, listening devices or anything like that. Um, your Alexa is not sending me special messages, you know. Um, anything like that. Nothing's going on like that. Don't get worried. But because some of you have told me about what God has stirred in you as you have watched the refugee crisis in Afghanistan. It has broken your heart. It has broken your heart to think about those who were our partners in their nation, those who had welcomed us into their homes and their land and their nations, now fleeing for, for their lives. And God has stirred a passion in you to do something about that. Now, I don't know all the details of what I'm about to start talking about, okay? And, and some of you would say, Joe, that's every time you open your mouth. Yes, I know that. But it, I know, I'm aware of it in this moment, Okay? I don't, I don't know all the details about this, but I, I, I do know this. Uh, myself and Pastor Dave and Dennis Kite, one of our elders, um, were a part of a Zoom meeting this past week with about 40 to 50 Dave, uh, other leaders, church leaders in the Charleston area um, to think together uh, and plan together, pray together about, about what's going to be coming into Charleston in the low country um, in the coming months. There are going to be some families, uh, Afghan refugees, who are going to be um, brought here to uh, build a life, to make a home, to dwell among us. And we have an opportunity to live out the scriptures and welcome them well. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Now, I I just, I I could kind of paint a vision here that we, we might get to adopt a family uh, that we could embrace and love on, uh, that maybe could live in the North Charleston, Somerville area. Uh, we could adopt them. We could embrace them. Uh, we could uh, sh- show the gospel to them with hopes of sharing the gospel with them one day. Uh, we have other partners in this area of the city that could bless them. And here's what I'm asking of you. If this is a passion that you know that God has put on your heart, that your heart has been heavily burdened uh, for this, then I'm just going to ask you to email me and just say, Joe, uh, refugees. That's all you got to say, just Joe, refugees. And I'll know what you're talking about, that you want to somehow be a part of whatever the Lord would allow us to do. And we'll unpack that and pull a team together and all those kinds of things. We may end up partnering with a church or two in our region to really be able to care well for a family. I I don't know what God's going to do. I just believe God wants to do something. And I know that he's already started stirring in some of your hearts on this issue. Because you saw what was going on and you couldn't stand it. It just broke your heart. Well, that may be the passion of God rising up in you because God can't stand it either. So I'm just encouraging you to, to, to begin to pray into that and think about that. Maybe this is a holy discontent that God is putting in your life. Now, one of the reasons that God gives us this holy discontent, this passion from above, is because sometimes it's the only thing that gets our eyes off our own problems. And we need a passion bigger than our problems to get us off of ourselves because we get stuck in ourselves so stinking easily. And God gives us this gift, this passion for the purpose of moving us off of our problems and into life. If we don't, then we'll never deal with what's real. We'll stay stuck in our own messed up reality and we'll never get to God's ideal. And so God puts a passion in us to get us kind of off of ourselves and onto what's going on and what he's doing in the world. Nehemiah was guided by his God-given passion. A fourth strategy that we see from Nehemiah that he employed shows up in verses 12 through 16. In Nehemiah 12 through 16, we read this. Uh, he's, he's out now in the night 
going to inspect the walls. He says, there was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. I you know, wouldn't recommend back in that day hanging out at the dung gate. He said, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. He said, then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So we're, we're talking about rubble and destruction uh, that he's trying to inspect. And so in verse 15, he says, Then I went up in the night by the valley, and I inspected the wall, which means he got off of whatever it was he was riding. And then he said, And I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials of the city, they did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So he had not revealed this to anybody. He was just out there following his heart, this this passion that that God had given him. But something would take place, and we read it at the end of the verse. Nehemiah came to realize he couldn't do this by himself. He had to have a a different perspective than what he had. So he he had to get off what was comfortable, his comfortable ride. And he had to get out and he had to walk among the rubble. He had to crawl over obstacles. He had to, to overcome challenges before he would ever get to the place of starting to uh, rebuild towards God's ideal. He physically had to process through all of that. And so what Nehemiah was doing was he was going out and he was getting a different perspective on what he had heard. Now he has seen it. Friends, here's, this is the opposite of what it means to live in denial. Okay, too many people, uh, Christians, just stay stuck in denial. And if you're going to ever get to God's ideal, you got to get out of denial. We we, we have to do that. Marriages won't get better. Families won't get better. Finances will never improve. Relationships that need healing will never heal. Nothing will ever improve at work. Nothing will get better at school. Nothing like that will happen until you're willing to get a better perspective. A different perspective maybe than the ones you have. If all we do is stay stuck in our current perspective, in our current field division, we will almost always stay stuck. We have to to go to get a a, a better vision. You know, the, the guy that has called this girl 47 times asking her to go out with him and she has told him, no, ain't happening, not gonna do it. He keeps doing it. He's in denial. That person who insists on squeezing into a size 10 when they're really a size 16, in denial, you know? That person who is having blood show up where blood shouldn't show up or a lump raise up where a lump shouldn't raise up but will not go get a doctor's perspective living in denial nothing will change until we step out of denial and friends that takes courage it takes courage to come out of denial like Nehemiah you will probably have to stumble around in the dark a little bit before you get to clarity. But you've got to make this choice to get out of what might kind of feel like a comfortable friend, even though it's killing you. You've got to let that comfortable friend go and step out of denial to make your way back. And yes, you're going to have to cross through some rubble, maybe some rubble you created in your own life. But it is the way out of denial because you cannot stay where you are and come out of denial. Another truth that Dr. Henry Blackaby taught me is this. You can't stay where you are and ever go anywhere with God. You can't do it. You've got be- you to leave where you're at in-, in order to go with God. Now that will at times cause you some, some pain. It can be scary. But Jesus told his followers in John chapter 8, if you're going to truly be my disciples, you will live as I tell you to, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
The only thing that will set you and I free from denial is coming into grips with the truth. Again, it'll cause you some pain. But friends, that pain will be temporary. To stay stuck in denial can become permanent. It can become chronic and it can be totally destructive in your life. If you stay stuck there, you'll never get God's ideal. You'll never experience the healing that God has for you without first passing through that reality out of denial. You've got to admit the truth about your situation to step into healing. You'll never change what you will never acknowledge. We've got, we've got to do that. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14 tells us this. You can't heal a wound simply by saying it's not there. You, you can't, nothing, no healing will take place. That's why you and I have to constantly be seeking a better perspective. Friends, finding a better perspective on our lives starts with humility. It starts with coming to grips with the reality, I don't know everything. I think I do some days. You think you do some days. But humility, coming out of denial, getting a better perspective means I start with that. I don't know it all. Oftentimes it means seeking the counsel of someone that I know thinks completely differently from me on a subject. Finding out why they think the way they do. Listen to uh, God's word from the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans go wrong with too few counselors. Many counselors bring success. Proverbs 24.6 says, For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Friends, if you're living in denial, the first thing you got to do is wage a war. You've got to wage a war against that which you're denying. And God's word tells us one of the ways to do that is with an abundance of counselors. Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe about this abundance of counselor thing. I believe it not only means many of them numerically, but I think it means many different perspectives. You need to be able to see things from lots of different angles if you're going to have full, wise counsel to really have gained a better perspective. One of the ways that I see people getting stuck in their own perspective is, is a very simple solution. Every now and then, you need to listen to a different news channel. If you stay stuck in one news channel, you're only going to get one perspective of the world. You need other perspectives in your life because we so easily get blind spots. And that's one of the reasons we need friends in our lives because we all have these blind spots. You know, a true friend is somebody who's going to be true to you about you. That's what a true friend will do. Now, they're not going to be mean or harsh or anything like that. But if you ask them, they'll tell you what's true about you. And we all need people like that in our lives that are willing to do that. If you really long for God's ideal, you'll be willing to crawl through some rubble for the purpose of getting a better perspective than your own. Let's move on. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. He's, he's done his inspecting, he's come back, and now he is speaking to the people in Jerusalem. And he says this, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now, up until this point, it has mostly been God and Nehemiah. God and Nehemiah. It's kind of like that old Tom T. Hall song. You know, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. Anybody remember that song? Me and Jesus, you know, we got it all worked out. Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. Me and Jesus don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. That may be great country music. I don't know. It is wretched, wretched kingdom theology. The Bible, all throughout the scriptures, proclaims over and over and over, we really do need each other. We really do need each other. And so what, what Nehemiah is doing here is Nehemiah comes to realize it, God's not calling him to be this one-man band. He can't rebuild the walls by himself. And so his language moves from me and God to we. It changes from me to we. And so here's what happened. Nehemiah has this move where he becomes communally mission-minded. And if you and I are ever going to see God's ideal lived out in our lives, 
We're going to have to do that in community, in the context of community. Now, Nehemiah was already mission-minded. God put a mission on his heart, you know, back in Susa, uh, that capital city um, in, in, in Persia. But God would move him, and, and he would come. The, over these eight months now, uh, this was kind of Nehemiah and God. And he saw God do some things to the king and others, but it had just been pretty much those two. But now he gets this perspective where he, he moves from me to we. Some of you are familiar with uh, this from the book of Ecclesiastes. It says two are better off than one because they can have a good return on their labor. Verse 12 goes on to say, And if one can overpower him who stands alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. There's strength when God's people are together. In 1 Corinthians, Paul does this incredible job of painting a picture of how necessary every member of the body of Christ is by comparing it to our human body. And he, he builds this kind of case of how important each member is and how one member can't say to the other, you know, I don't need you. And then he gets to verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and he says this. Now, here is what I'm trying to say. Paul's, this is Paul's summary of what he spent 26 verses saying. All of you together are one body of Christ, and each each, each one of you is a separate and necessary part of it. I, I know some of you are saying, Joe, that didn't come up on the screen. It's not in my notes. I'll put it on around this, you know, today again, okay? Um, it, it, uh, I'll give you access to it. See, Nehemiah would come to understand that it was God's plan to live out God's plan through God's people, not through one person. God, God had a plan that was bigger than Nehemiah. And he would want to live that out. And God wants to do that in his church today. Friends, it will take all of us, every one of us. If God has brought you here, whether you've joined this church or not, if God has brought you here and this has become your home church, God wants you to engage in his kingdom mission through the people of God known as River Bluff. If you want to see revival come, if we want to see walls rebuild, if we want to see healings come in, in families and, and, and in lives and in our city and in our nation, we've got to work together towards that. Now, I'm, going to, I'm just going to stop here. I'm not spending much time on this point because there's a whole other message coming about this, okay? Just so you know. Just whet your appetite here a little bit because this is a big topic that we need to take a whole day and address can, can God start with one? Yes. But he will not accomplish big kingdom things. You, you search the scriptures solo. It, it, will, it will take all of us. If we, if we intend to see life lived, if we intend to see transformation come, if we intend to see his mission done, it will only happen in community. On to verse 18. And I told them, so he, he's, he's told them kind of the bad news. Here's, here's the condition of the city. Here's what's going on. That's in verse 17, verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now remember, Nehemiah just laid out this this challenge of how horrible things were, their living conditions, how they were kind of living in disgrace and derision in front of, front of other nations. But then Nehemiah kind of paused, and he did his but God story. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's a wreck. Things are horrible. It's bad. It's never been as bad as this before. But let me tell you what God did. And then he launches into this God story, and he, he tells the people of God's hand that was upon him for good. Friends, the sixth strategy that Nehemiah employed here to move into God's ideal and bring other people with him is he was ready to share his God story. And we've got to be ready to share our God stories. So what are yours? What are your God stories? What are, what are your stories, you know? You ha if you've walked with Jesus any length of time, you got more than one. What are your God's stories? We believe so much in the power of God's stories that we've got a whole hallway back here 
our main hallways you come in by the entrances that on the right side of the wall is just the story of God at River Bluff, the Midland Park, that we, we were blessed by the hand of God. We get to see that. Um, back in, in Joshua chapter 4, in Joshua chapter 4, they were about to enter the promised land. They were about to cross over the Jordan River, which at this time was at flood stage. And God told uh, Joshua, he said, I want you to get 12 men, have each man go into the river and pick up a big rock and bring it out of the river. And he said, even before, even before the Ark of the Covenant goes before it, I want you to go down in the river, get those 12 rocks, and then here's what you're going to do. You're going to pile those rocks up in a mound, and that's going to be a place of memorial to what I'm going to do. So that every time you walk by this in the future with your kids, you tell them what I did here, how I'm going to pile the water up of the Jordan River so that God's people can cross safely. You and I, we need memorial stones in our lives. We need to set up these, these firm foundations in our hearts and our minds that are rooted in God's stories. God's stories that speak of the goodness of God. Your kids need to know your good God stories. And we need to be as confident in ours as Nehemiah was in his. Nehemiah spoke of, of the goodness of God in what had become, for four months, the darkest season of his life, as far as we know. He was miserable for four months, lamenting and, and, and praying and fasting before God. But then he says, but the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Friends, the world is desperate for a little bit of something good right now. The world is primed for some good news right now. And if you're in Christ, you got it. You, you carry that good news with you. I told you about uh, Scott Carlson and his mom passing. When I talked to Scott yesterday, he, he shared, you know, the sorrow that he was in and the grief he was in. But here's what Scott wanted to talk about. Scott wanted to talk about, the, and these were his words, the goodness of God for giving me three days. When Scott's sister called him this past week, it was, she's not going to make it. Scott, you got to come. And uh, th they were down in Pensacola, Florida. And so Scott goes, anticipating that he's not going to see his mom before she passes. Now, his mom has been battling dementia, I think, since 2007. It's been a really long time. And uh, the last months especially have been hard. And so Scott wanted to be there with his mom. And he got there, and God gave him three days to be with his mom. And then allowed him to be in the room when she took her final breath. And all Scott would talk about really was how good God had been to him to give him that gift. How much that meant to him. Scott and I kind of joked a little bit about God doing his best work in three days. Because he did some great stuff in three days. Miss Ruth Douthat. She was broken hearted at the thought when, she got, when they got word that Trina had taken a turn for the worse. She was broken hearted over the thought of Trina dying in a hospital apart from family. And the doctors made a way for Ruth and Trina's son James. Some of you that have been at River Bluff a long time only know him as Kermit. He's grown up now, okay? Kermit is James. Um, and, uh, but the docs made a way for them to be with, be with Trina. And they were there with her for several hours before she passed. And all, that's all what Ruth wanted to talk about. She talked about how it hurts and how lonely it feels. But she wanted to talk about how good God had been to make a way for, the, for her and James to be there with Trina. The goodness of God, even in the face of the worst that life has to throw at us. We need those God stories. We need to be looking for, for those things. See, both Scott and Ruth knew this promise from God. That he causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God causes all things to work towards that. 
My friends, in, in Nehemiah's day in Jerusalem, they needed to hear that story of the good hand of God. They, they saw the desolation, the destruction, the rubble around them. People in our world today, they see the rubble and the devastation around them. And they are waiting for somebody who's got a story about the good hand of God at work in their life to put it on display. And so we need to keep proclaiming it, the gospel, the good news. But let me say this. We don't need to just proclaim it for the world. We need to do that. But we got to tell it to one another. And you need to look in the mirror and tell yourself the gospel, the good news about Jesus every day. Because the world is coming against us in so many ways. And we need to gather like we do weekly. Because here's what's happening every day. Satan, who is also given some other names, one of those being the accuser, is he is constantly accusing not just you, but he's accusing God in your hearing. He is constantly whispering into your ear, God ain't good. God, he's not all powerful. God don't love you. If he did, and he'd fill in the blank. He comes at you accusing God in your hearing. And he tries to deceive us into believing that every time something bad happens in our lives, where's God? He must not care. He must not love. What's he doing? He's forsaken you or worse. There are some, some in this church that walk around with a sense that God is angry with them. And so anytime anything bad happens, he smacks them. These are, these are people who have trusted Christ. They believe that they're still taking on the wrath of God. Friends, you need to know the gospel. And the gospel story is this, that when Jesus got on that cross for you, if you have trusted him, all of the wrath of God that you deserved, that had your name on it, was poured out on Jesus' body. It was put on Jesus' body so you would never have to bear an ounce of it. And so when you are going through difficulty, that is not God being angry with you and pouring his wrath out on you. I mean, he may allow some discipline to come to get your attention, to redirect you towards repentance, but he's not angry at you. It breaks his heart when that comes on you. He loves you. You matter to him. He has plans for your life. And that accusation needs to be silenced by stories of good God, your story of God's goodness. You need to tell yourself those good stories. You need to write them down. You need to have them ready to share with others. See, this is the same lie and accusation that he's always brought against God starting back in the Garden of Eden. This isn't new. We need to know the goodness of God so we can spot the schemes of Satan. And one of his schemes is to accuse God in your ears. And it will destroy you if you, if you live there. See, when, when we sing that song, Jesus paid it all, it not only means that he paid all the debt for your sin, it also means that Jesus absorbed it all. He absorbed all of the wrath of God that was destined for you until you trusted Jesus. And he bore it all. See, when tribulation and suffering and tragedy come, into your lives and the lives of people that you love. Know this. Know that death and evil and sin were taken care of at the cross. God, God, God's not to blame. That's the work of the enemy. And again, that's one of the reasons why we gather weekly, at least to remind ourselves about the beautiful name of Jesus about the gospel message that we need to tell each other. He's a liar. He's an accuser. He's the destroyer. God is good. God is compassionate. God is kind. He is long-suffering. He's filled with kindness to those he loves. And when we forget that, the accuser comes, and we get robbed of the joy of our salvation. You know, David declared in Psalm 21, he said, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly we rejoice. Friends, we need, 
We need to see one another rejoicing in our salvation. The world desperately needs to see us rejoicing in the goodness of God, not being fake or phony in our struggle, but celebrating the goodness of God in the midst of our suffering. And friends, if you have Jesus, you have something to celebrate, even in the midst of your suffering. Be ready to share your God's stories. Did you notice what happened in the storyline immediately when Nehemiah shared his story of God's goodness, the good hand of God? The scriptures tell us in verse 18 that the people, not Nehemiah didn't prompt it, the people just spontaneously stood up and said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. See, good stories about God's goodness will cause people to re-engage in his goodness, to step into rebuilding, to step into movement towards God's ideal instead of staying stuck in their own mess and rubble. It'll help people move along. Seventh strategy that we see here, and again, I'm going to mention this one, not not camp here long because we're going to unpack it more fully in the days ahead. Verse 19, it says, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us, and they despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, one of the things I hope you notice real quickly here is earlier in uh, chapter 1 and in chapter 2, there had only been two dissenters. It had just been Sanballat and Tobiah. And now we've got Geshem, the Arab, who's coming on board. Friends, the moment that you start talking about the goodness of God, there's going to be increase in attack. The world's going to come against you in a new way, and it, it will grow. The work of Satan will grow coming against you. The moment you start doing that, and so here's, you need to do what Nehemiah did. You need to brace for the inevitable backlash. If you're going to start moving through what's real towards God's ideal, you've got to be braced for backlash. Because Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem came against the people of God. Just came against them. And that's going to happen the moment you start speaking about the goodness of God. The moment that you start to rebuild. Whether it's rebuilding your marriage. Whether it's rebuilding your finances whether it's rebuilding a a relationship with an adult child maybe, whether it's rebuilding uh, a business, whether it's rebuilding anything, you're going to have backlash. You need to be braced for that. In a couple weeks, we're going to walk through some practical ways that Nehemiah does this because he does it multiple times throughout his journey. But I want to leave you with just one thought on on this issue today. And this is something that some of you have heard before probably. It's, uh, It's reported that this was inscribed on the wall of Mother Teresa's children's home in Calcutta about dealing with difficult people. It says people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self centered. You ever met anybody like that? Don't answer that question. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. If you give the world your best you have, it may never be enough for them. Give the world the best you got anyway. And then it says, you see in the final analysis, it's between you and your God. It was never between you and them anyway. There are going to be detractors. There are going to be people who are going to stand against you. You just need to be braced for that backlash. But I don't want to close on that thought. I want to close on one last thought from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. Nehemiah replies to those detractors, those, those difficult people in his life. And this is what he says. He says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. 
the God of heaven will make. Here's what Nehemiah is doing. He is declaring his unfailing trust and faith in the goodness of God. Even in the face of this ridicule and jeering and accusation of you know, coming against the king. Um, all of those things. He, he's, he's saying, I'm trusting God. And this is the, the eighth strategy that he engages here. Is if you want to make it through what is real in your life that you're dealing with to get to God's ideal, you got to believe that God wants to bless you. you got to believe that God is going to bless you. Hebrews 11.6, if you're not familiar with that, you may want to write it down, come back to it, or check, on, check it out on the realm. I'll post it later today. Hebrews 11.6 says this, you can never please God without faith, without depending on him. Anybody who wants to come to God must believe that there is a God and, and that he rewards those who sincerely look for him, seek, seek him. Now, friends, when you're in the midst of a struggle, here's the question. Do you look for God in that struggle? What you're facing right now, the struggle that you're facing right now, are you looking for God in that struggle? Because faith does that. Dependence on God means I'm looking for God in my struggle. And I am looking for his blessing. I'm looking for his reward. Psalm 84, 12 says this, O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Friends, the blessing comes through the trusting. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe that God wants to bless you? More than that, because I know many of you here well enough to know this, that you have told me you have put your trust in Christ. If you have put your trust in Christ, do you believe that you are already blessed? I mean, not that you're just looking for a blessing, that you are already very, very blessed. Now, I know things are tough. I know struggles are intense and great right now. But here's my question. Are you currently enjoying the reality that you are living in the blessing of God? Now, some of you said, I'm looking for it, man, looking for it. Okay, here's the question. Do you have Jesus? Do you have Jesus and does Jesus have you? Because if you do, you were blessed beyond anything you could ever really truly believe. We don't know it all yet. But if you have Jesus and Jesus has you, friends, you, you, are, you are blessed because you already have the blessing of access to life in the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Step into it. You have access to the eternal way of living that Jesus came and lived. You have access to the Jesus kind of life. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And he, the Bible tells us, sealed your salvation. It is stuck on you. You can't pop that seal, baby. The Holy Spirit holds that seal together. You have the Spirit living in you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to strengthen you when you need it. He will be your constant companion. Do you have Jesus? Does Jesus have you? Because if you do, you're blessed beyond measure. You have a great inheritance awaiting you, waiting on you, this incredible inheritance. And you also have access to the riches of heaven now. Listen to some scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 2. God's people were told this. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you will be blessed. Galatians chapter 5 tells us this. That the fruit of the Spirit, the blessing of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that God has plans for us that are not for calamity but for a future and a hope. Proverbs 16, 20 tells us that whoever gives thought to the word, if you give thought to the word, it says you will discover good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us this, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All things pertaining to life. God's power, divine power, has granted that to us. Psalms 126.5 says, Those who plant in tears will reap in harvest of joy. They weep as they go out to plant their seed, but they sing as they return to the harvest. Friends, you're going out sometimes in this life, and it's sorrowful as you're planting your seed. But you're, you're going to come back rejoicing in the harvest of what you planted in the Lord. God's word tells us that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united in Christ. Friends, we're blessed Do we believe it? Do we believe it in such a way that we live it? Do you know that God wants to bless you? That he's promised to bless you? And that if you're in Jesus and Jesus is in you, you have been blessed. Because if you want to ever get to God's ideal by going through what's real, you have got to believe in the blessings of God for you. Let's pray. Father, we come now as your people. We come and we confess, God, that everything out in this world, sometimes our own flesh, and certainly the devil, lies to us about our blessing tries to steal our blessing, tries to rob us of joy in our salvation, tries to kill us, steal us, destroy the joy that we have in you, the blessing that belongs to us in Jesus. And oh God, we want to we return to that blessing. We want to return, God, in this moment to being confident putting our trust in, our certain hope in, the reality that in Jesus we are blessed beyond measure and we have a great blessing awaiting us as God's people. And so we come now, God. We come to walk back into your blessing, believing it, trusting in it, believing that in that blessing we find favor in you. Believing in it, God, that your face is turned towards us, not away from us. Believing, oh God, that we are the blessed ones. We come in this moment to be reminded and worship you in our blessing. And it's in that beautiful name of Jesus we come to receive it. Thank you.